Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, the Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Every year, the ADCES Foundation provides funding for research and education initiatives that advance diabetes prevention, health, and wellness. In 2020, Melanie Barbie, a registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist from California, applied for and received a grant from the ADCES Foundation to support her program's transition to a virtual model of care delivery. Today, Melanie joins us to share the lessons she learned from her transition to online nutrition education for people with diabetes. You'll be sure to hear some practical considerations for preparing and delivering your own online nutrition and cooking classes. Melanie, welcome to the huddle. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Well, we are so happy to have you here, especially because, you know, I've had these great conversations with you over the last year about these online cooking courses that you've put on for the people with diabetes that you work with. And it's been such a journey and so much fun to follow you, um, especially because this is really a way that you connect with your clients and the people that you work with and connect with them in a really personal way, which is what has been really fascinating and fun to hear about. But if you could first introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Melanie Barbie. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. I'm also a certified diabetes care and education specialist, and I'm a diplomat of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I have both a recognized uh, diabetes education program and a certified diabetes education program. So both with ADCES and ADA. And uh, we keep those current because we think it's really important, you know, as far as what we do to have those accredited programs. So what I do is I work at the Western University of Health Sciences. Our primary focus is on doctors of osteopathic medicine. That's who we matriculate. But the school also has physical therapy, physician's assistants, veterinary science, a school of dentistry, ophthalmology. Uh, so it's quite a diverse health institution. So I work with the medical students, but my primary focus is on diabetes education for our patient care clinic on campus, which the students join me for many times. So that's what I do on a daily basis. You know, that diverse provider training that you're you know, kind of right in the center of is perfect for the work that you do as a diabetes care and education specialist, because it puts you right at the center of the care model, your opportunity to really work with healthcare professionals and people with diabetes. So maybe you can walk us through why you applied, what your project idea was, um, you know, what was the impetus behind it? When the pandemic began, we 
could not provide our diabetes education cooking classes. We stopped calling them diabetes education classes, diabetes training classes, all those things. We decided that what people really needed to understand is what can I eat? How can I impact my diabetes in a positive way? And I work with a PharmD who is also a certified diabetes care and education specialist. So we decided that we wanted to call these classes diabetes cooking classes. We held them on weekends. We had probably between five to 15 people join us on the third Saturday at nine o'clock in the morning to about 2 p.m. And we did what we would call didactic just to make sure we covered all the aspects, the standards of care for diabetes. And we let folks talk about their emotional response to when they were first diagnosed, how they feel about their diabetes now. So very open, interactive. After that, we had a little break and then we would um, circle back and do a cooking class for about an hour. And those folks actually got to cut their vegetables, got to prepare the dishes and then they got to sit down and enjoy that food and anything that was left over we always had little, you know, little Tupperware things, little Ziploc things, and folks got to take home those foods. If we had any leftover ingredients, they got to take home those foods so that they could experiment at home themselves. So when pandemic hit, we couldn't do that anymore. And that was really rough because we really felt like that had taken off and people really appreciated that. Not only did they appreciate it, but they also were, from a practical standpoint, able to put a lot of these things into place. So what we found was during pandemic, a lot of folks really started leaning on food delivery services and fast foods and comfort foods and different things like that, that started adding a lot of pounds to people and also, more importantly, wreaking havoc with their blood sugars. So when I saw this uh, grant opportunity come across my email, I thought, wow, what a great opportunity to try to do this virtually. How can we provide something for our community, which is obviously in need of support during this very difficult time? And support had become leaning on fast food, convenience foods, highly processed foods. And that's not the support that obviously is going to be yielding good results for people's health. We applied for the grant. We were so fortunate to get it. And one of the things that we wanted to do was provide that virtual space for people uh, to learn about diabetes, uh, especially if they were newly diagnosed. And of course, everything that we do is always offered to folks with prediabetes. So we had a lot of those people also join us. So we wanted to make, make sure they were comfortable about how to manage their diabetes, especially during a pandemic. What can you do at home? How can we support you? And then also, you know, addressing the issue of if they do cook, not getting in a rut not getting bored, not, you know, repeating things so that it would turn into uh, making that phone call or the email order to Grubhub or one of those. The other thing that I realize is a lot of people don't know how to measure things or follow a recipe. So I uh, decided to use some of those funds to buy a cutting board, a paring knife, measuring cups, measuring spoons, and then also a nice shopping bag with the Western New Health logo on it for people to be able to take that home with us for the participants to have brand new cooking utensils to be able to prepare those things at home. And there's nothing better than having a sharp knife when you're cutting into vegetables. So those were the goals to just provide a good space for, for people to talk about their diabetes 
be more comfortable about working uh, at home to do their own self-care because, you know, at the beginning of this whole thing, no one was even seeing their primary care doctors. So we wanted to provide just a place where folks could talk about their diabetes and, and have a little fun with it. So I love that comment you made early on about addressing diabetes in a positive way, because it's really those, those small wins, right? Following you throughout this whole year, you guys really did bring really that positive focus during a pandemic, which, you know, really, I think was hard for people to deal with. But, you know, switching tracks a little bit here, I imagine it must have been a real learning curve to switch from in-person to this virtual teaching environment. Really, what did that entail? Well, for us, since we are at a university and the university had already gone virtual for the medical students, so that we had actually in our favor. We reached out to all our community partners like uh, Pomona Valley Hospital and some of the primary care physicians, offices, practices in our area that we were experiencing a good number of referrals from. So from a marketing standpoint, we had to develop a way to communicate also electronically, not just emails. We, had, we developed a QR code so that offices and, and the hospital could just use that code and pass it on for patients to be able to use or participants to be able to use their phone to open up the two classes that we were offering with the explanations. So it was a big tech leap for us in the sense that we really couldn't go around delivering flyers this time because people weren't able to gather or you know even come around some some of these offices and, and the hospital settings we had to figure out a virtual way to communicate as well so we we did the QR code we did a Qualtrics survey we opened up a Zoom just for this and then we had to educate our patients how to open up a Zoom link what does it look like? Do you have an email account? Well, if you don't have an email account, do you have a cell phone? We'll send you the link there. So there were so, so many aspects from the tech standpoint to make this happen. The other thing that we learned about that we didn't know is because it was new to us too, is that the university had developed and created a coronavirus response team. So when we were dealing with the CRT one of the ideas that we had was to be able to distribute the cutting board, the paring knife, the measuring cup, the measuring spoons. And also I did reach out to local grocery chain and we were able to provide a pound of sweet potatoes, two pounds of green beans, some no salt added canned tomatoes, beans, a bag of apples and a spaghetti squash. The grocery store, the manager was nice enough to fill up 200 bags with those groceries that I picked up in my van and then took them over to what we were calling a drive-through delivery system for the participants so that they could actually put in what they learned uh, from the classes to use with the actual food ingredients and the equipment that we provided completely from the grant funds. So all of those things were a challenge, not just the tech you know, but the communication to the potential participants, uh, we did a lot of phone calling to make sure that they got their tech, that they understood their tech. And then uh, having the, the drive through at that time, uh, that was in December. And so we had N95 mask on, another mask on top, a face shield, gloves, and gowns, surgical gowns that we had to wear. 
And being in California, of course, sometimes you don't know what kind of weather you're going to get in December, but that day it was 95 degrees and we had all that stuff on in the drive-through. So that was also really, really interesting. So those are just some of the things that we had to manage that were challenging for the grant and to follow through on all the, the goals that we had for that. You know, and I remember seeing those pictures and I could tell you guys were sweating under under those clothes. Um, one question, you're thinking about all the infrastructure, right? So you have all this infrastructure developed, you're able to put it on. What topics did you decide to focus on? And how did you choose those topics? Well, we tried to follow, I guess, the bones and the structure of our introduction to diabetes self-care, which is basically allowing folks to understand that diabetes is not your fault. So many people said, you know, I just couldn't help myself. I ate this. I drank this. It's all this like guilt about what's going on with their diabetes care. And so when we decided what we were going to talk about, we really wanted to focus on look, this is a hard time for everyone. And we understand that it's difficult to maybe not be as good with your food and, and your diet during this time. Giving folks permission to not feel so guilty about things. Because one thing we noticed is when you do feel that level of emotion, that it's easy to say, well, you know, I blew it. So I'm not going to do anything now. I'm not I'm just going to let my body do whatever. And so we really wanted to address that first, meeting the participants where they were with this unknown, you know, unprecedented, that word's been used so millions of times during this thing, but there was so much unknown going on that we wanted to provide a place where they knew emotionally they could just let it go and let's get back to well, before this happened, what were you doing? You know, your blood sugars were, were good, right? So let's talk about that. We tried to make that uh, something that to focus on. And then the other thing was, because most people say, well, I'm home, and if I'm not going to order a pizza to be delivered, if I'm not going to order from, you know, my local places or bring stuff home, what can I do? So that's when we really wanted to focus on food and the best place always, always seems to be are the non-starchy vegetables because we're able to eat more of those, feel more full with, you know, with all the fibers, but a lot of food that's delivered and, and, you know, we've had what McDonald's been around since 1950, some somewhere around there. So we are fast food nation and a lot of folks don't know how to cook vegetables. They weren't taught because they just weren't taught as kids and perhaps their parents weren't taught either. So we felt it was a good opportunity to show the participants what non-starchy vegetables were what we call our free category. So these are free. Half of your plate, if you have one to two cups of these vegetables, you will be full on these things. And then we're going to take, you know, maybe if you do have some takeout, a quarter of the plate will be that takeout food. And then half of the food is going to be these vegetables that we're showing you how to make and then let's have a fruit, uh, you know, big glass of water, you will feel full. People were worried about not being full if they, you know, if they didn't have the foods they were having. So those were the things that we decided to focus on. And then, of course, whatever type of physical activity they could do. A lot of folks that aren't able to be physically active 
We made sure that we had some resources, uh, chair exercises using the band, basically being able to just stand up and sit down at a table side. And then we had, you know, folks that said, well, I was afraid to go outside and walk. And, you know, then we had more information that, that it was safe to go outside and walk unless it was a really crowded area. So we, we encouraged people to uh, go for walks and do whatever, if they were uncomfortable leaving their house and in their backyard or up and down their stairs, whatever they were physically able to do, because we did see a lot of sedentary behavior, you know, due to the fear again, and what they were seeing on social media, what they were seeing on television, what they were listening to, and all of those things sort of snowballed into a little bit of what do I do? Like deer in the headlight reaction, just kind of frozen. People were kind of frozen in time about what to do for many things, including uh, managing their health. Well, I love that idea of meeting people where they're at. I think that's what I'm going to keep in my mind from this podcast, you know, and addressing people's fears and diabetes is not your fault, right? So now this new environment, you know, working virtually, right? I know it came as a shock to all of us, right? But did it bring some benefits? Yes, I think it's here to stay, no doubt about it. Now that I've done this virtually, when I'm doing one-on-one virtual counseling, uh, diabetes education, I find that it's very convenient for people to be able to bring me food labels from something that they thought was healthy. We can review a recipe. They can show me ingredients. They can show me, oh, I bought this blender. I have no, no idea how to work it. And so all of those things, and then conversely with myself, if I'm talking about an immersion blender, which I just did yesterday, actually, with someone, or if I'm talking about, I roasted some Brussels sprouts, I did, have you ever seen, you know, spaghetti squash? And people say, no, I've I've never cooked either one of those things. I can run down to my refrigerator, I can run down to my kitchen, and I bring it up and I show them what it looks like. I, you know, do a little mini, mini instruction And a lot of these folks, too, are being assigned to me as part of a a health insurance network from up to 120 miles away. I'm part of several insurance companies. I'm in their networks. And so I'm just wondering that if we didn't have the pandemic and those people were assigned, if you will, to a dietitian that's 120 miles away, chances are in this kind of traffic in Southern California, they would not be coming to that appointment. So I think I have seen more people in places like, you know, I'm close to Pomona. So I am seeing people that are in Victorville, that are in Lancaster, that are in Wrightwood, that are in Temecula, that are in Menifee. So these are all cities that are 60 to 100 miles away from our clinic. So I'm thinking that that's a really a positive. Also for folks that are challenged with transportation. Some of my patients that do have those issues that prefer to see me in person, so every other week I am in the clinic in person, they will wait up to two hours for one of those local bus services to come and pick them up. So that means uh, an appointment with me would be probably a seven or eight hour chunk of their day. So if someone is having transportation issues Um, And then recently, more kids are going back to school, and that's going on. But for many, many moms had to quit their jobs and stay home with their kids. A lot of prediabetes women in their late 20s to mid 30s, like 
40 years old. I've had a lot of folks go into prediabetes and they're taking care of their kids at home. They can't come in for a visit because there was no childcare, there was no school. You know, grandparents were having to be careful because they were at higher risk. So all of those things were keeping people at home. So the virtual appointment was actually super convenient for people that had childcare, caregiver issues, if they have elderly parents that they're responsible for, or if they were just so far away that perhaps during a pandemic, they wouldn't have, wouldn't have made the trip, you know? So that's a silver lining. And then again, just being able to show some kitchen equipment, some of the foods and especially the vegetables, because that's my thing. I'm always pushing those non-starchy vegetables, you know, just to be able to show those things to folks instead of explaining it. My plastic food models, which are awesome and I love them. I take them everywhere I can, but you know, those only go so far. So to actually show somebody how to prepare something from your kitchen and showing them equipment and then having them showing me from their kitchen is uh, also a huge plus. Well, I can't agree more with what you said earlier that virtual is with us to stay. And I think it's been a gift, right? We can say the last few years have been really hard, but this has been a gift of the last few years. But I also think it takes a little bit of thought, right? Like it works great for some people, but not for everybody. Um, and, and that's probably, you know, where the DCES can come in and kind of assess the situation and say, here's where it's going to work for my client. Here's where it doesn't. Are there any places that you can think about or people that you've worked with where this wouldn't work? Well, certainly there are some people that probably in their 50s, 60s or older that just don't want to do tech. And it could be financial also. You know, Wi-Fi, we're finding that there are areas in everywhere, actually, where Wi-Fi isn't good where cell phone service isn't good. And it really does have to do with the economy of those areas. And so there are marginalized communities and huge disparities that we've seen in the tech availability. So I don't want to say that people don't want to do tech. I think they do want to do tech. I think that there are some areas that are economically challenged and the cell phone companies don't want to put a tower there or they don't want to put the Wi-Fi, Fios, whatever, you know, all that stuff. You don't even think about that, but it's literally not available in some of those communities. So, you know, a lot of people would, when that was happening, they would go to the local Starbucks or coffee shop where they offered free Wi-Fi, but none of those places were allowing you to go inside. So I think that that was a big challenge for people that were trying to do that. Now, there were family members that had, you know, better phones, better service. And I did have um, some of my participants go to, I'm going to my daughter's house so I can do the class, you know, or so that I can see you on our virtual appointment. So that was something that those disparities, and as we saw in school districts, because really they're saying, you know, a lot of kids didn't learn anything in 2020 because of the lack of support of technology in some of these communities. And so we saw that as well. So so those folks that knew that they were um, not so much that they were tech challenged themselves, but the fact that they just couldn't keep the connection. Other participants that were ESL, so English uh, as a second language. Now, I, I'm fortunate that I'm half Peruvian, so I speak fluent Spanish. 
So I was teaching these these two courses bilingually, or else I would have had to do four classes. You know, we did a part one and a part two for the grant, for example. And what we found was in order to finish on time, we didn't have a a whole lot of time to prepare for this. It was basically about, you know, two months to do everything. And what we found was that the folks that spoke Spanish were very, very patient when I was speaking English. However, in the chat, I did get a lot of feedback that they didn't appreciate me going into Spanish. For me, that was a little bit of a disappointment. I was a little surprised. But I will say that now that we're back in clinic half and half, you know, we're staggering our providers so that we're not all in there at once and we're doing everything we can, you know, to following all the LA guidelines. But what I find is that most of the people that are seeing me in person are English as a second language and not just Spanish. I'm having a lot of, for whatever reasons, uh, folks that speak Farsi, folks that speak Egyptian and Vietnamese. And so we have actual interpreters coming in to the clinic with them that are assigned to them, uh, provided by the insurance companies. So I think for those types of patients and, and diabetes education participants, I think it's very important to make that connection because when you're with someone in the room, even though you have a mask on, I think you are still able to impart um, using your hands, using more uh, prompts, writing things down because perhaps they understand English written better than they do speaking. So those are some of the uh, populations that we saw that, yeah, that perhaps a virtual is not appropriate. Well, and you're just reminding me how important body language is in communication. Oh, Think, yes. Yeah, thinking about the the ESL patient population you work with. And, and also, you know, that technology is really highlighting all of these disparities in our communities. So I, you know, I hope that, again, that's something... That we learn from, but again, that that that's probably another podcast. You know, you and I can go off on tangents forever. Yes, but, yes. Right? but it is a huge takeaway. It's yeah. a huge takeaway with this experience. Yeah, and that reminds me, we only have a couple minutes left, so I want to make sure. You know, we really hit on, you know, your top must-haves. Like, say, do you have something? You know, three to five. Or what were your top must-haves that you would? leave our listeners with if they wanted to do an online cooking class of their own for their patients? I think the must have is obviously a kitchen that works for you. I don't have a huge kitchen because I think there's some kitchens that are so big, you wouldn't even be able to see the person cooking probably. (laughs) So, you know, having a workspace that you don't um, have to reach too far to go, have everything right there and prepared Time, I think you really do. It's not just turning on the camera and just watching someone prepare in their kitchen. You need to stage the food. So in other words, you have to have what it looks like raw. Like a lot of folks, if you show them a finished dish of spaghetti squash, they're going to go, well, what does that look? Is that what it looks like in the store? You know, no. So you have to have a raw spaghetti squash, one that's already cut in half, and then the dish that's already prepared. Because basically you have about an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes to show someone how to cook things. So I think having the right equipment is necessary, um, something that can be demonstrated and repeatable, you know, because if they can't do it at home, then what's the point, you know? So staging it is key. And that takes a good, you know, two, sometimes three hours ahead of time to prep the food ahead. 
always have everything ready so that you don't have any lags in your preparation and your presentation. Um, must have someone to handle the chat. So a, a sidekick, a partner, a good tech person, definitely key uh, because they're handling the chat. They're stopping if they need to, if someone is saying something that perhaps shouldn't be recorded, all of those things that you don't anticipate happening. And then I think also on the back end, one of my wish lists is having somebody to support those videos, these recordings, these things to post on our website. So I have a lot of things in, you know, I guess, post-production, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, that we're working with that is good stuff, but it's just taking much longer to go through because we don't know what to expect people to say or do in some of these recordings. So my wish list, I would love to have someone that would be dedicated to looking at all of these things and posting everything every time we do something new, you know, posting something new from our recordings so that it's always fresh. And I think that's really important. And then, and then also ultimately having support from your administration, from your whoever your, your supervisor or boss is, um, having that level of importance on these things. And the way that I've been able to convey that, just a little nugget to take back, is we created a wellness meeting that we do monthly, the first Wednesday of the month at eight o'clock. And it's an hour that is protected time for our staff. Oh, we'll do like some demonstrations on, uh, let's see, exercises, wellness techniques, breathing exercises to calm down stress and, you know, to center yourself. Because, you know, we, we never close, our clinic never closed. So there's, there's a lot of stress going on. We uh, cover all the aspects of wellness. And so I will do a cooking class for my own staff. Always try to focus on fruits and vegetables like I do with our patients and participants in the virtual diabetes cooking classes because they appreciate it too. And that's always where I, I notice like participation wise, we always get the most people participating when there's a cooking demo and a food demo going on. And the good thing about that is you have buy-in from the medical assistants, from all the providers, whether they be doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, uh, some of our specialists, our endocrinology, everybody participates in these meetings. So now they know what we're able to provide for patients and all those folks have a lot of interaction with our patients. So that helps us uh, have a continuing you know, amount of people that can be referred in. The other thing is we send the flyers out electronically so that everybody in the clinic can register a patient for the class. So it's not just us doing that. And we found that that helped quite a bit if we have other folks that are able to register the patients. And that takes a little bit of tech. So that was on our wish list. And we were able to make that happen with IT that everybody could register a patient, not just the two diabetes educators in the clinic. And Melanie, last thing before we have to say goodbye, what would be your top recipe idea that you would tell people to start with? You know, I, the spaghetti squash is always <laughs> a, such an amazing thing. And, and it's, you know, I do it all the time because so many people have never seen one. And when you look at it and you, you know, I always like knock on it. It's like this really hard thing. And it's just hard to imagine that you can cook it and get, you know, all this, uh, noodle looking 
product out of there. You know, it's just, it's, it's hard to imagine that you get that pulp that looks like noodles out of something that starts out looking like this elongated yellow pumpkin thing, you know? So people are really amazed by that. And what I try to do is show them different ways to prepare it. And that goes a long way because you can do anything, you know, not just make it substitute it for noodles, but you can put it in soup. You know, I teach people that uh, in the morning, maybe they're having, you know, sausage, eggs and bacon because, oh, because you know what, there's no carbs in that. But yeah, but just because they have carbs doesn't mean you're going to have three strips of bacon and two pieces of sausage. So how about we try using more vegetables in the morning and spaghetti squash, when you put that in a pan and poach an egg in there, it's so good. You know, it's, it's so it has like so many different ways to prepare. And that's why I kind of get stuck on that one, because it just has a lot of versatility. And then also, I do emphasize fruit as being nature's candy. A lot of folks are afraid to eat fruit when they have diabetes, so they completely cut it out, but then they substitute it with things that are processed, like, you know, granola bars and all those bars that are, I always try to tell them they're emergency things for when you're hiking and you don't have any food, you know, or something like that. But it's not something that we should have instead of a, an apple or instead of, you know, right now, apples, pears, tangerines are all in season. They're so delicious. So I show them, especially how to cut an orange. A lot of people don't like to peel an orange, you know, so how do you cut it? How do you make it convenient for you to eat? Because it's, you know, it's good for you. It's nature's candy and it's not bad for you. So those are the two things I think when they're newbies is uh, spaghetti squash and fruit. Please eat fruit too. Well, the spaghetti squash thing, I'm always going to remember because it has to be <laughs> so engaging for people. And that is. is, yeah, and that's probably the key, right? Is, I mean, you're engaging, Melanie, and engaging people is so important. So I think that's one of those just things we always have to remember. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing with our listeners. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And I've enjoyed the whole year with you. And I'm so excited that we can share it with everybody, too. Enjoy your fall, enjoy your winter, and we will talk soon. You as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle. I hope the practical tips and tools Melanie mentioned in today's episode motivate you to take the necessary steps to improve the delivery of your own virtual services. Thanks to the donations from ADCES supporters like you, the ADCES Foundation can allocate resources to programs and services like Melanie's. Learn more about other programs supported by the ADCES Foundation and make your own donation at diabeteseducator.org forward slash foundation. To access more guidance and resources for launching telehealth services, visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash telehealth. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.